Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 10, Oedipus at Colonus, Death of a Hero. Last time, we looked at the main part of the Oedipus story as retold in Oedipus Tyrannos. Sophocles returned to the story in his last work, which is so late that it was produced posthumously by his grandson. Or maybe it was produced by his son. Opinion seems to be divided. His grandson was Sophocles the Younger, also a writer of tragedies that are all now lost to us. And it seems to be all that we know for sure. Oh, and the date. That was 401 BCE. Sophocles sets this part of the myth in his own hometown of Colonus. Perhaps that is just a bit of sentimentality by an old man, but it gives him the opportunity to praise Athens, always something never to be missed if the opportunity arises. So I think it's safe enough to assume multiple intentions there. A bit of home crowd pleasing never goes amiss. Setting the play near Athens also allows Sophocles to introduce the mythical Athenian leader Theseus as a significant character. So before we get to the action of the play itself, here's something of his story. The most well-known part of the life of Theseus is the tale of how he fought the Minotaur in a labyrinth on the island of Crete. With the help of a ball of string in the most well-known version of the story, he manages to find his way through the labyrinth, kill the Minotaur and find his way out again. Having succeeded, he falls in love with the daughter of the king of Crete and after suitable celebrations, sets sails for the return to Athens. On the way, they stop on the island of Naxos for supplies. Athena appears to Theseus and instructs him to leave his intended bride on Naxos as the island belongs to Dionysus and he demands her as an offering. Distraught, Theseus leaves, but in his distress then forgets to change the sails of his boat as he approaches home, which was the prearranged signal of success. Assuming his son has perished, his father Aegeus throws himself off the cliffs before the boat docks, and hence the naming of that stretch of water as the Aegean Sea. It's quite a Sophoclean tale in itself, with the high point of success being followed by tragedy. According to Plutarch's life of Theseus, the ship was preserved by Athenians, moored in the harbour of Athens and kept in good repair for many centuries, thus giving the Athenians a physical connection with their mythical past. Eventually, all of the original wood had to be replaced, and it led to one of the oldest concepts in Western philosophy. The Ship of Theseus paradox asks if the ship, with all its parts replaced, is the same entity as the original or not. It's a thought experiment about the nature of reality and the physical world. In other respects, the myth of Theseus is similar to other Greek foundation myths, those of Heracles and Perseus, for example, where the hero is fundamental in carving order out of the chaos of the times of the deep past to create the new ordered world. Theseus is a typical Greek hero, strong, talented, male and brave, but not immune to rash behaviour and thoughtlessness, even hubris. Athenians held him as the great reformer and the driving force in the political unification of Attica under Athenian rule of law. He was said to have built a palace on the Acropolis and established the cult of Aphrodite for the good of the people. If the stories are based on a real local king or warlord, then we're probably looking back as far as the late Bronze Age, the 8th or 9th century BCE. 
Like many given a founding role, Theseus is ascribed with a miraculous birth. His father was the king of Athens, and his mother the daughter of a neighbouring king, but, unknown to Aegeus, she had been possessed by Poseidon on the night before their wedding, so Theseus is in fact semi-divine. Aegeus returns to Athens, where he takes up with Medea, a character we'll meet properly when we look at the work of Euripides, and mother and child are left in their homeland. As a young man, Theseus retrieves his human father's sword and shield from underneath a rock where they had been buried years before and, having proven his birthright by doing so, leaves for Athens. Preferring not to travel by sea but to take the more dangerous land route, he encounters six challenges, mostly involving thieves and bandits, as he travels through Attica. He is, of course, triumphant in each case through a mixture of cunning and bravery and arrives in Athens where hospitality is offered and a good reputation for bravery gained. Medea realises who he is, and fearful that he will usurp her own son in the line of succession, she asks him to go and capture the bull at Marathon, which was a symbol of the power of Crete, hoping he will perish in the process. He succeeds in the challenge, and, on his return, Medea tries to poison him, but the attempt fails when his father recognises the retrieved sword and shield, and knocks a cup of poisoned wine from his son's hand. Thus, father and son are reconciled, and Medea is banished. Theseus's life is filled with further adventures, although the legend has it that he eventually fell out of favour in Athens and died by being thrown from a cliff on the island of Skyros. His remains were later discovered with the help of an oracle and reburied in Athens in 475 BCE. When we meet him in the play, he's still ruling Athens and becomes a supporter of the aged Oedipus. Oedipus at Colonus opens with Antigone leading her blind father into a grove. They've been travelling itinerantly since his banishment from Thebes. As they rest, they are challenged by a villager who tells them that the area is sacred to the Eumenides. Oedipus realises that this fulfils a prophecy about his place of death. The chorus of men in the village enter and greet the travellers warmly, but as soon as they realise who Oedipus is, they want to throw him out in case he brings down a curse on the village by settling in the sacred spot. The old man defends himself by saying his crimes were done in all innocence, as he was unaware of his parentage and the killing of Laius on the road was an act of self-defence. He asks for the king to be called, and the chorus agree that such strange circumstances require his special judgement. Then Antigone sees a rider approaching on horseback and realises that it's her sister Ismene. She reports that Ectocles, their brother, has taken the throne of Thebes and Polynices is preparing to attack the city. Both brothers have received a prophecy that success in the coming fight will depend on where the body of their father is buried. Ismene says that Creon is planning to come and take his body to the border of Thebes. Creon doesn't plan for Oedipus to have an honoured resting place within the city, but outside the walls, where he may still give the protection to the city that the oracle spoke of. Oedipus is incensed by the poor treatment his sons and brother-in-law are suggesting, wishing they could have been as selfless as his daughters. He dedicates his remaining life and death to the kind people of Colonus and Athens. The chorus remind Oedipus that he is trampled on sacred ground and is mainly leaves to perform the cleansing rites that are demanded. The chorus asks Oedipus for details of his past deeds and he tells them the tales of incest and patricide as Theseus arrives. 
The king knows the full story already, and his unquestioning support for Oedipus is contrasted with the plying, gossipy inquiries of the chorus. Amazed by the king's generous nature, Oedipus offers him his burial site, thereby ensuring that Athens will always be victorious against Thebes. Theseus protests that they are on friendly terms with that city, to which Oedipus says, Dear son of Aegeus, to the gods alone is given immunity from age and death, but nothing can escape all ruinous time. Earth's might decays, the might of man decays, honour grows cold, dishonour flourishes, there is no consistency between friend and friend, or city and city. Be it soon or late, sweet turns to bitter, hate once more to love. It's a bleak assessment, with maybe a hopeful moment right at the end, of man's potential for self-destruction. Theseus accepts his offer, and Oedipus is made a citizen of Athens. The chorus sing the praise of the city. This is the opening strophe. You have come to a horse-famed land for rest, O stranger worn with toil, to a land of all lands the loveliest, colonus of fertile soil. The haunt of the clear-voiced nightingale, who hid in her bower among the wine-dark ivy that wreathes the vale, trilling her ceaseless song. And she loves where the clustering berries nod over the sunless, windless glade, the spot by no mortal footstep trod, the natural harmony kept for the Bacchic god, where he holds each night his revels wild with the nymphs who fostered the lusty child. It's a fine ode by Sophocles to his hometown, but also great scene setting for the audience. Theseus leaves to pray at the altar of Poseidon and Creon enters. He asks that Oedipus return to Thebes so that he can properly be cared for by his family. Having been warned of his true intention, Oedipus refutes his duplicity, and his only response is to list the harms Creon has already done him. They argue furiously, and Creon reveals that he has already captured Ismene and tells his men to take Antigone. The chorus berate him for his cruel and treacherous actions, but his only response is to threaten more force to make Oedipus come with him. Just in time, Theseus returns and declares to Creon, you have offended both against myself and your own race and country, having come to a state that champions right and asks that each action be governed by law. You have set aside the custom of the land, and like some freebooter are carrying off what plunder pleases you, as if by the gods you thought this city without men or manned by slaves and me a thing of nothing. But such villainy was not learnt in Thebes, Thebes does not breed such unrighteous sons, nor would she praise you if she learnt that you were robbing me, yes, and the gods to boot. Creon replies by condemning Oedipus, saying, Not assuming this city void of men, or counsel, son of Aegeus, as you claim, I did what I have done. Rather, I thought your people would not set such store by my kin, and keep them against my will nor would they harbour, so I had assumed, a godless parasite, a reprobate, convicted of incestuous marriage ties. Oedipus leaps in, again defending his actions. Sophocles makes the argument for his complete innocence of action, much more forcefully here than in the earlier play, and Oedipus's argument is well made. The Athenian guards take the women back from the Thebans. 
Oedipus praises the Athenians for their fairness and justice and goes to kiss Theseus in gratitude, but holds back at the last moment, realising that he is still tainted by his past actions. The presence of the banished Polynices is announced, and although Oedipus is initially reluctant to talk to him, Antigone persuades him to hear what he has to say. His entreaties have no effect on Oedipus, and he predicts the death that will befall both his sons. I leave you this curse as my last bequest, never to win by arms your native land, nor to return to Argos in the vale, but by a kinsman's hand to die, and to slay him who expelled you. He predicts that the only part of Thebes the brothers will possess will be the land that they are buried in. It's harsh treatment, and perhaps reflects Sophocles' own feelings about disloyal sons. You'll remember from his life story that his own sons had recently taken him to court, and he had been forced to defend himself. Antigone cannot persuade her brother to abandon the attack on Thebes and avoid the predicted end, so Polynices leaves to prepare for battle and death. There is a sudden thunderstorm and Oedipus calls for Theseus. He believes that this is a message from Zeus, that his time is near, and, filled with renewed strength, he asks Theseus and his daughters to follow him. An ode marks the gap in time, and then a messenger enters to tell how Oedipus performed purification rites and then sent his daughters away, assigning them to the protection of Theseus. Only Theseus is to know the place of Oedipus's death. The messenger recalls how he turned to look at his king and the old man. But by what doom that stranger met his end, no man but Theseus knows. For there fell no fiery storm to take him in that hour, nor whirlwind from the sea. But he was taken. It was a messenger from heaven, or else some gentle, painless cleaving of earth's base. For without wailing or disease or pain, he passed away, an end most marvellous, and if to some my tale sounds foolishness, I am content that such could count me fool. Theseus returns with the weeping women. They long to see their father's resting place, but Theseus reminds them that the place is secret and that no one may go there. My children, he strictly charged me that no mortal should approach the sacred portal or greet the hidden tomb where he lies with funeral litanies, saying, If you keep my wishes, you shall hold your realm at rest. The god of oaths heard this promise, and to Zeus I pledge my word. Antigone and Ismene reluctantly agree and ask for passage back to Thebes, where Antigone still hopes to stop the coming battle between her brothers. The last words of the play are given to Theseus. Go in peace. I will not spare any effort in zealous care for all your needs, which will gladden my friend in his grave. And the very last word from Sophocles for the chorus. Grieve no more, let sorrow rest. All is ordered for the best. An interesting side note to the staging of the play is that it may have required the use of a fourth actor. It's difficult to be sure from the text we have, but unless there was some very swift doubling up with some of the same characters being played by different actors, then a fourth actor is seemingly required. Of course, with the use of masks, such switching of actors would be possible, and maybe not too confusing for any audience used to recognition of character more by mask than any other features. 
The call odes in the play are steeped in melancholy and contribute strongly to the overall feel of the piece. One of them refers to tensions between Athens and Thebes. It's a reference to the narrowly avoided conflict in the play as Creon threatened to offend the rules of hospitality. But also, it could be a topical reference to contemporary issues where Thebes had allied itself to Sparta during the then-current upsurge in hostilities. In other respects, contemporary references in this play are quite limited, perhaps reflecting an ambition to make the themes of the play more timeless. In this play, Oedipus has become a very different sort of hero. As well as being resigned to and completely accepting his fate and his place in the world, he is totally convinced of his own innocence. So he can go to his resting place without complaint and knowing that in death he will be good for the land that he adopted. This is far from the Greek ideal of the heroic character. No macho bravery or cunning here, but a recognition that life can end with a different sort of heroism that works for the benefit of the whole society. And layered into this at the very end is the beautiful irony of the old blind man leading the sighted to the hallowed spot. The Greek audience must have been lapping it up. The play may have less dramatic action than other works by Sophocles, but its fluid, lyrical form is well suited to the subject matter and embodies the ideal of the old man moving slowly towards death, but still in command of his faculties and seeing the world more clearly than he ever has done before. The huge peaks of hope and despair that we saw in Antigone and Oedipus Tyrannos may just be small hillocks here, but that's because Oedipus now has no expectations but death. The few angry outbursts are just echoes of his former self. He, and to an extent Theseus, are a new sort of Greek hero. The hero whose strength is in recognition of truth and justice. As a tragic figure, Oedipus acquires nobility at the end and is worthy of the reverence that will be shown to his memory. As far as we know, Sophocles was the only dramatist to work with this part of the Oedipus myth and I find it very difficult not to put that down to an old man wanting to work with a story that allowed him to include aspects of his own great age. Oedipus is not a self-portrait, indeed he's very different from what we think we see of the genial, well-liked and productive Sophocles. But the portrayal of an old man who has found contentment in his own terms is powerful and heartfelt because it's laced with truths about age and a long-life perspective. Having come from the tremendous highs and lows of Oedipus Tyrannos, all that argument and anger and bluster, that huge story with all its potholes, it's something of a relief to finish on a much more tender and thoughtful piece. Of the three great Greek tragedians, Sophocles sits comfortably in his chronological place between Aeschylus and Euripides. Aeschylus worked with the big themes of mankind's place in the universe and resolved the tragedy by looking beyond them to a higher and ultimately controlling truth. Euripides, as we shall see in the coming weeks, uses irony and bitterness to focus on the splintering of the individual as events unfold and, between the two, sits Sophocles, who perhaps represents the human experience in its truest form, albeit still within the confines of accepted religious beliefs. The presence of the gods is lighter here, but also the presence of the poet himself is only lightly felt in the characters and situations, and his skill as a dramatist is to make their actions seem freely made and with reasoning, be that reasoning good or bad. If life is hard and destructive, 
The question Sophocles asks is not, why did such unfortunate things have to happen, but rather, given the circumstances, how should one conduct oneself, how should one act, and what should one do? In Plutarch, there's a passage which purports to be Sophocles discussing his development as a writer. It's probable that it comes from an earlier work, the Epidemia of Eon of Hios, which recounted conversations with Sophocles. It's a work that Plutarch is known to have referenced, and Eon was a friend of Sophocles. The wording is open to interpretation, but the consensus is that Sophocles saw three distinct phases in his work. In the first, he was heavily influenced and actively imitated Aeschylus, but then consciously moved away from the pomposity of that style, and, in a second phase, introduced new ways of getting the audience to respond emotionally through bringing tragedy to a more personal level. The third stage, he says, is where he concentrated more on the language and diction used by the characters, so that they became more naturalistic and therefore more individual and expressive of personal experience and feeling. From the text we have, it's difficult to be sure of the true meaning, but if we have it right, it's an interesting insight. And a final word on Sophocles before we leave him. At his death, Athens was again under siege from Spartan land forces, and it's said that they blocked his funeral procession, until the god Dionysus appeared to the Spartan leader and appealed for safe conduct for the mourners through the siege lines. This was granted, and his remains were carried to the family tomb. In death, his status became semi-divine, and sacrifices were often brought to his resting place for many years to come. Next time, we look at the life and times of the youngest of the three great tragedians, Euripides. He's been described as the punk poet of Greek theatre, so be ready for some surprises as we try to understand how he can be lauded by some generations, completely ignored by others, and yet, arguably, has more influence on theatre through the centuries than any of the other Greek poets. I look forward to your company next time, but if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. And finally, to reference the translations I've used while looking at the works of Sophocles, these are and have been adapted from the translations by Francis Storr, which are freely available to read on the internet thanks to their age. I also have found some good audio versions of the Theban plays, if your preference is to listen. These are also freely available as podcasts or ebooks performed recordings. Mm-hmm.